The text for this morning is from Isaiah uh, chapter 61, uh, verses 1 through 4, and verses 10 and 11. I'll be reading in Spanish, and the English text will be on the screen as I read. El Espíritu del Señor y Dios está sobre mí. Por cuanto me ha ungido para anunciar buenas noticias a los pobres. Me ha enviado a sanar los corazones heridos, a proclamar libertad a los cautivos y la liberación de los prisioneros. A pregonar el año del favor del Señor y el día de la venganza de nuestro Dios. A consolar a todos los que están de duelo. A confortar a los dolientes de Sion. Me ha enviado a darles una corona en vez de cenizas, acete de alegría en vez de luto, traje de alabanza en vez de espíritu de des desaliento. Serán llamados robles de justicia, plantío del Señor para mostrar su gloria. Reconstruirán las ruinas antiguas. Restaurarán los escombros de antaño, repararán las ciudades en ruinas y los escombros de muchas generaciones. Me deleto mucho en el Señor, me, me regocijo en mi Dios, porque Él me vistió con ropas de salvación y me cubrió con el manto de justicia. Soy semejante a un novio que luce su diadema o una novia adorna con sus joyas. Porque así como la tierra hace que broten los rotoños y el huerto que hace germinan las semillas, así el Señor y Dios hará que broten la justicia y la alabanza ante todas las naciones. This is God's word. Please be seated. All right, church. Kids are being dismissed for uh, Children's Church. That's why you see these folks exiting. And a reminder to parents to pick up your kids either right before or right after you take uh, communion. Parents get to utilize, and I've mentioned this a couple of weeks now, um, a reminder sheet in order to help them to know what the kids are learning in uh, their class so that they can take it at home and talk about it um, around the dinner table a little bit. Uh, right now, they're uh, learning about how, uh, oh, little buddy, how Jesus taught about God's kingdom from Matthew chapter 13, and that's one of the things that they're focusing on the moment. Um, my name is uh, Brian, by the way, if you're visiting today. I'm uh, the lead pastor here at Trinity City Church, and we are uh, going through um, a sermon series actually nearing the end of it, uh, but before I introduce that, I want to give a reminder about an announcement I gave last week that our, our church is going through uh, a church assessment, and that's a way for this congregation to give a voice into uh, some decisions that we'll be making in the coming months, uh, uh, just a plan for the future of our church. We've, we've been able to be blessed by the Lord by seeing a lot of growth in Christ um, in various ways, and we're looking at hiring some, uh, some new staff and some of these other things. So we want you to weigh in uh, about our church life, what makes us unique, and how we can plan for those things. And I sent out to members and, and folks that call Trinity Home uh, this survey that you can fill out that takes about 20 minutes. 
And uh, we have until November 12th to, to finish that up. Uh, our goal is to get about 120 adults here at Trinity to fill out that uh, assessment and that survey. We are uh, 61 out of 120, so as uh, you know, Bon Jovi says, we're halfway there, uh, and we're living on a prayer. We'll see if we get to uh, 120, uh, but that will be the goal over the next couple weeks. The sermon series. We're going through a sermon series, and we're near the end of a sermon series called Blessed, Delighting in the Good Life. And in this sermon series, we have uh, seen ways that our world calls us into what they would say is the good life. And it's a type of vision, though, that's making us anxious and exhausted. And so we are going back to Scripture to see the various ways that uh, the Scripture pushes back on that vision of a good life and actually gives us what the, a real life of delight is. And we looked at just various topics from uh, relationships, friendships, uh, marriage, parenting, technology, work. Uh, generosity, and we have two more sermons left. Uh, today is uh, the call, the title of the sermon is Blessed Are Those Who Plant a Garden. Uh, what that means, because uh, it's not as evident maybe in the title, is we're looking at the, the doing of justice by creating beauty, rather uh, division and diversion. Next week is the last sermon in the sermon series that's called Blessed Are Those Who Mourn, Remaining Steadfast in Trials Until the Day of Comfort. So after that, we're going to go back to a book of the Bible, the last book of the Bible that we did, because this is typically what we do outside a topical series. We pick up the book of the Bible, we go through it, whatever comes up, comes up. We go back and forth from New Testament to Old Testament, so if you're new, you just missed a New Testament book, the last book that we went through was the book of Revelation. The next book that we're going to look at in the coming weeks is we're going to go from the end to the very beginning. We're going to go Genesis as our next book of the Bible uh, that we will tackle as a church. Uh, that will begin in the season of Advent, will be our first Sunday uh, going through Genesis, and it's going to take us all the way until summer when we go back to uh, the summer in the Psalm series that we do each and every summer. Uh, so that's what we're going to be up to. I chose Genesis, by the way, because a lot of these themes that are even in this sermon series of blessedness and, and, and being uh, delighted in God's good life, uh, these themes come up in the book of Genesis, so I figured it's a good way to look at a specific book and the specific stories in that book uh, that show many of the themes that have come up in this sermon series as well. So let's go ahead and pray, and we'll dive into this sermon. Let's pray. Lord, you have gathered these people because you are at work in this congregation, just as you're at work in our city and across the globe, uh, redeeming people to yourself, awakening dead faith, and giving it strength and hope and a deep sense of your forgiveness and love. And Lord, we know those things because you have revealed yourself to us. You did not keep silent or hidden, but you delight in showing your glory. You delight in giving grace and restoration to a people who then will take the good news of that experience and that relationship and declare it to our neighbors, our classmates, and in the entire world. Lord, help us to have a vision now, Lord, for that part in your prayer that you taught us, that it would be in our city, in our neighborhood, as it is in heaven. Lord, help us to focus on how to do that and to capture a vision of the good life and the good work that contributes to the, the good of our city and world. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of you that know me, you 
probably know this fact about me that I bike uh, all year round. Um, biking is my main way that I get around and I have graduated from one of those old school what they call now acoustic bikes to an electric bike, uh, a me bike to an e-bike, right? So I, I now ride around and some of you true bikers say that I'm cheating, uh, but I just say that I'm middle-aged and it just works a little bit better for me and that's how I uh, get around the city. I do this all year round, including uh, the winter, which is always odd to me that people that live this far north think that's odd that I would bike in the winter. It's like you think that I'm some type of delusional person for doing something like that, but I mean, most of you cross-country ski or go snowmobiling or snowshoeing or whatever, we all do activities outside. This is one that I do. So as a person that enjoys that so much, you can imagine that I was a little discouraged and out of it last week when I discovered my e-bike was stolen. So that was kind of that was a bit of a bummer. I actually went into the pulpit last week and that was what I was dealing with kind of behind the scenes and in my own heart, my, my e-bike was stolen. And it was just this, quite this experience, quite this 24 hours, because once I realized my e-bike was stolen, it took me a while to kind of work through in my head how it happened and what likely happened to cause it to occur. Uh, I remember biking home that evening after hanging out with some friends. I put my bike in front of the garage door and we have this little keypad uh, that is just a little indecisive sometimes when it starts to get cold. Sometimes it opens the garage door, sometimes it doesn't. This was the instance where it wasn't, and so I went inside to be able to push a different button to be able to open the garage door. And like I often do, you walk into rooms in your house and there's like chaos and there's things to do, and I get distracted, and I was gonna host some folks and got things ready. And then uh, by, by, by the, the time that I uh, kind of figured out what was uh, going on, what had happened is somebody hopped on the bike while I was in front of my garage and just took off with it. Uh, fortunately, the bike that I have has a key that you need to use in order to uh, start it, so I took a little bit of joy in the fact that he took away an e-bike that could never start and just kind of hoped that as he was chugging along on that 75-pound beast that he at least pulled a muscle or something. That's, the only, that's kind of you know, my weird sense of justice that was happening in my head at the moment. So I did what all I could do at this point, I was, you know, trying to find this thing would be like trying to find a needle in a haystack at this point, and so I reported the bike is stolen, and there's this uh, online bike index that uh, people uh, can list their bike on there, and you can report it and the listing that it's stolen, and that's all I could do. Um, and then you just wait. And so I came to church, like a, a lot of you, with everything going on in your life, and you focus on Jesus. But then after the gathering, I get a text from somebody, I found your e-bike. Now, I didn't know at this point whether this was good news, whether it was somebody that was trying to scam me, I had no idea. And following up with this person, I later found out that it was a neighbor that was just across the alley that had found it, and he was taking it back to my house. We arranged a, a time to pick it up. And uh, what I found out, and it was just fascinating because like, you're just curious, like where did you find it and what condition was it in? And he shared, he's kind of across the alley, so he was going down the alley and he saw my bike that was just, it was just thrown to the corner and abandoned. He, was, he went and got some groceries at Kowalski's, came back and saw that it was still there and just brought it back to his house because it's like, that's an expensive bike to just be there. It, probably somebody didn't just leave it there. Uh, so, but, so then it was really fun to kind of imagine this thief getting on my bike and just like going about a block and just saying, that's too much work, this thing won't even start, and he just threw it to the side and that was it. So it was finally 
uh, uh, restored to me uh, my, my e-bike, and I uh, get to ride that again. Now, many of you just let, know this about me as well. Uh, just like I like to e-bike, I also love my city. I love to uh, live in St. Paul, St. Paul, Minneapolis. It's just a, a, a for me, just I, I'm a city person. I love the neighborhoods. I love the culture. I love the diversity. Uh, you hear me boast a lot about how much I enjoy living here. But like anywhere, a city isn't perfect. And you experience things like this uh, sometimes no matter where you live. Uh, in addition uh, to my e-bike getting stolen, that was the same week that they, we had some packages stolen from our front porch. Uh, even in the history of living in St. Paul over the last 15 years, uh, we've had other things like that even happen on our block with uh, that you know, phase that St. Paul went through with some catalytic converters getting stolen and some Kias you know, disappearing from the streets. These are things that happen even in a place of, uh, uh, that you love uh, in the cities and neighborhoods that you likely dwell in. And this is not even to mention some of the more comprehensive matters that happens in cities like ours that extend beyond one block, uh, histories and injustices that are far deep uh, and, and systemic. We often experience life this way, the joys of a place, the beauty of a place, and the brokenness of the place. And often when we start to focus on the brokenness of our world, it starts to get overwhelming when we see the uh, brokenness and injustices, not only around maybe your own neighborhood, but around uh, the globe. And I think one of the things I want to do with these, especially these last two sermons, in a sermon series like this where it's blessed, delighting in the good life, uh, maybe some of you have already been thinking this, but you could push back and be like, how can you call something the good life? How can you delight in a good life when there is so much brokenness, there's so much pain, and there's so much out there to be overwhelmed and discouraged with? And this sermon's really going to tackle that from kind of a more comprehensive, like, uh, uh, angle of, like, our world being broken in the next sermon, really, what about my own life when I have my own grief and my own pain? Uh, so this sermon, again, will lean into this experience that we have of being overwhelmed by the brokenness on our block and in our world and what we can do about it, especially as we consider the gospel again and get overwhelmed not by brokenness but by the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's start with considering the word peace in the scriptures. Peace, especially in uh, the Old Testament, is a Hebrew word uh, called shalom. And it's a rich word. It has deep meaning. And it's, uh, it's more than just the absence of conflict, war, and injustice. It means that, but it also means more. When peace occurs, according to scripture, then there's also a presence or a state of something greater. Peace is when something is experiencing completeness or wholeness. Give you some ways of illustrating this. If a shirt that you wear is at peace, then it means that the fabric is holding together without any tears or holes in it. Uh, if a road is at peace, it means that it's paved and smooth. It doesn't have cracks or potholes that we experience quite a bit here in St. Paul. Uh, we could say that St. Paul roads are not at peace. There's no shalom on the condition of our roads. Uh, the spaces in your home are at peace when it's clean, when things are put into place and the space itself functions according to its purpose. That last illustration is one that uh, uh, many of you probably experienced too, because uh, I know many of us have full households. There's a lot that we have to do, whether it's taking classes or raising kids and working, and there's just so many responsibilities, so often our house is 
full of chaos and things are not put in their place and you just look around your room and it's not, it doesn't feel peaceful, it just feels like more work needs to be done. Uh, one of the ways I experienced that in my house, many of you know our, our third floor is an apartment, we use it as an Airbnb, and it's often just quite the stark contrast with the rest of our house that's busy, and so things are often not at peace in the house in terms of the condition of the house, but then once in a while, if I want to feel a little bit more at ease and nobody's staying at my Airbnb, I go up where it's clean. And everything has its place, and there's no clutter, and there's, like, it's, just, it's just a nice, peaceful place to be. That's what that word is getting at. Shalom means this, this completeness, that things are put in their place, things are at peace. It's not chaotic, it's not overwhelming. That's what shalom is in the scriptures. Now, at many times, when you look at your world, you know that this world, like a home that's kind of out of place and chaotic, is not at peace. The experience can be overwhelming, not just because of the things we experience close to home, but we're aware of conflicts and injustices everywhere around our world. If you watch or read the news at any level, local, national, or global, you're aware of the brokenness of this world that's all around you, even on the other side of the globe. And the amount of information that we as modern people carry around in our minds about this brokenness is absolutely overwhelming. Here's like just an example of some of the things that might be occupying your mind at any given moment about just the brokenness of our world. You likely have personal things in your life that are not at peace. A conflict with a friend, a coworker, a family member, the overwhelming stress of expectations between work and home life, and you still, on top of it all, have piles of dishes to clean at home. You have brokenness in your extended relationship network that you're aware of. A classmate who might be going through a divorce, uh, someone's neighbor who just set up a carrying bridge because of life-threatening illness, for example. You might experience the brokenness and see the brokenness in your city, in your neighborhood. Catholic converters being ripped off, drama and debate surrounding how neighborhood schools should be operating. And if you didn't know this, election day is right around the corner, so hopefully you know who you're voting for and what the most just candidate will be. That might be rattling around in your head as well. Then you look nationally. And we're well aware of the brokenness in our own country. We could not only point to violent events or the general poor mental well-being of our nation, but also how incredibly divisive and tribal our politics have become, which is frustrating because politics is supposed to be a vehicle that we can use to bring people together to get things done, but now it's more divisive and uh, tribal than it's ever been. Globally, there's also, like, if you look at global news, there's an infinite amount of things and other things that you might not even be aware of that you could be aware of on the, the global scale, big and small, that will remind you that the world is not at peace. Uh, for example, I mean, you, could just, you, you can learn just random things about what's going on in the world that just is just another thing to add on to the pile. For example, if you didn't know, in Paris, they have a bed bug epidemic. Just so that you probably didn't know this, but I'm just putting that on the, the, the pile of things to rattle around in your head that they're, they're supposed to host the Olympics, but they're dealing with bed bugs. So uh, if you're about to go to Paris on a trip, something to pray about maybe, keep that in mind. And that's just like one really, really small thing. If you really lean into what's happening in the globe, we also know that there are some very serious things going on, some really, really broken and sad things with wars in Ukraine and the Middle East that many of you have likely been praying about as you've been praying for peace. 
in all these examples, I'm just trying to list of all the things that might be occupying your imagination in any given moment when you look at your world, both personally and then extending it to the ends of the earth, that there is plenty to focus on that is just wrong with the world, that's broken, that's unjust, and it's overwhelming, and it can really wear on and weigh on your soul, and often that's exactly what happens. Now, one of the things that's also discouraging, to keep kind of painting this picture, is the fact that uh, we often, as human beings, don't have maybe even the tools or even the ambition to be able to deal with some of these problems that I just list listed. Our culture is not in a good place right now to give us the tools that um, requires the type of unity, focus, and hope that one needs to do in order to really put in the good work of justice and mercy. And there's a bunch of reasons why, but I want to list quickly three just off the top of my head as I was brainstorming why it's so difficult for us to do much about these things sometimes. One reason is that uh, we often engage these issues in a very disembodied way from our world. We mainly debate about these events in digital and relational silos rather than getting our hands dirty in a real place with real people that need peace. We're very detached from these things. It's more ideas to be debated and opinions you have than the actual real work of getting in a room with somebody and getting into a place of brokenness and doing something about it. We're also often too distracted and restless to do anything about it. Uh, to work towards peace isn't a quick and easy fix, but it needs years or sometimes even decades of persistence and perseverance in order to be accomplished. And finally, third and finally, uh, the work is often frustrating, this work of pursuing peace and justice. It's often frustrating and difficult to the point of making many of us hopeless. We just have given up about it. Often the work of doing justice and loving mercy seems like you're bailing water out of a canoe that has a hole in it. It's just like, what's the point? It's just going to fill up again. And that raises all these other questions. What can we even do about all this? If this is really our experience and it's so overwhelming, I think we, even as Christians, we, we have, because of the framework of the gospel, we are a people who deeply care about peace and justice, but we too can feel very overwhelmed about the brokenness in our world that needs to be restored. And one of the things that I think is really helpful to ask is what can we even focus on? Now, throughout the years at Trinity, we've given a lot of sermons on these themes of like politics and justice on, on a global level, on a personal level. And this sermon is really seeking to give you not the answer, but another one of those answers. Another way to focus on maybe a small way in your life that can make it a blessed life in a, in a, in a way that... Uh, might seem insignificant, but at least manageable to be able to focus on a way of pushing back the brokenness of this world. And I summarize it by just these two main words, plant and stay. That's what should, uh, that should be your focus in trying to do something about it. Plant and stay, or to expound that a little bit more, plant a garden and then stay in your city or your neighborhood, your campus, whatever that place is. Plant and stay. Now let me, ex uh, let me show you where I'm getting that from the scriptures. And let's start by going all the way back to Genesis 1 and the garden. In Genesis 1, we see God working and accomplishing his task of creation. And he creates humanity and de delegates that responsibility to care for his world to them. 
And so he delegates that to them. And then we see in Genesis 1.28, the Lord says this, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the, in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This text, some people call it the cultural mandate. And here we're told to do these various things. Fill the earth, which is not merely talking about procreation, but also the human activity of making communities, creating societies, civilizations, of people who bear God's image that work towards the flourishing of one another. Second, the text says that we're to subdue or have dominion over God's creation. These commands is what, what, what we mean if you walk past that sign every Sunday, the practice of stewardship. That's what those phrases are getting at. It understands that God is our creator and king, and he rules over everything, and he delegates us the task of now managing his world in a way that he would so that we can bring care and love and flourishing to that world. That's what it means to steward our world. It's much more than the care of creation in the environmental sense. It includes that, but it's much more. The practice of stewardship means any kind of work in God's world that is for his glory and for the common good of others. That is the practice of stewardship, and it's based in Genesis 1. And then Genesis 2 narrows down that imagery to the garden. Look at verses 15 and 18 in, ver in chapter 2. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Here we see that both men and women are called to keep the garden and to see that it flourishes. This is the, the, the setting is Eden. And here the imagery is them working and keeping the garden. And it carries this, carries this theological significance that creation needs ongoing care. And human beings have been delegated to by God to carry out that task of seeing that creation flourishes. And, and that's what our calling is. So stewardship is like gardening. In gardening, we neither let creation go wild without any involvement from us, nor it is like this aggressive involvement where you pave a paradise and put up a parking lot. Gardening is seeing that you take this space and see that it becomes a beautiful place where other people can be blessed by it. In gardening, we arrange the material world, we rearrange our material world, and make it more fruitful and beneficial for everyone. And that's how we bear fruit and, and, and fulfill the purpose that God has for us in Genesis 1. And you do that through your various jobs or vocations. You're using all the resources at your disposal to bring flourishing not only to your garden, but everybody that relies on you, your work and your community of workers that you surround yourself with. Your garden includes every vocation that you're called to. Vocation is just one of those Latin words that means you're calling. And we have more than one calling that is a part of us stewarding the gardens that God has given us. We have many vocations at the same time. Our vocation is not only the thing that we get paid to do, it's more than that. Our jobs are a vocation, but that's only one of many. We also have callings, not only as employees, but as volunteers, neighbors, friends, husbands or wives, fathers or mothers, uh, classmates and students. You get the idea. The practice of stewardship 
thus includes all of these vocations and any type of work in any place, including all of your relationships. And our calling as Christians, as human beings, is to steward these various vocations, and that becomes the primary way that you love your neighbors as yourselves, is why you, your stewardship and vocations that you find in these different relationships and different places that you are called to, to work and to manage, just like a garden. Now, that's Genesis 1 and 2. We know by Genesis 3, that's not how we always experience it. Work isn't just something, and our, 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 our work of gardening isn't just something that is, is a great thing to do. It's a frustrating thing to do. It's a difficult thing to do. In Genesis 3, sin enters the world, and that work of gardening is now frustrated by these thorns and these thistles. And Genesis describes the impact of that that we feel to this day in various parts of our world. Our relationship with God and one another is no longer at peace because of sin entering this world. The garden itself is, as I've already said, full of thorns and weeds. It's now a place that's impacted by sin and vandalized by injustice. That's our experience now in this work of stewardship. The garden was a place where there was peace with God in the world, and now we have been exiled from that experience and that place. But as we know in the scriptures, the story of God continues because the Lord is determined to bring peace again through his people to a particular place. And so God, after Genesis 3, continues to launch a redemption and restoration project to restore and to rebuild. And when we get to Isaiah 61, which is what the scripture reading was for today, we see God's promises and commitment to that project. Even throughout the Old Testament, God's people, to say it, lightly, just ride the struggle bus when it comes to recreating these places, these gardens of peace where God's peace and presence dwell and people live in harmony together. They ride the struggle bus in order to do that. And you have story after story of it kind of happening, but then sin really beating it back. And then, and then you get these promises, though, in the prophets where there's this person that they uh, are, are predicting is going to come someday. This anointed person. Anointing is just one of these, these rituals in the Old Testament. It's this ancient practice where you pour water on a thing or a person, and then that person is set apart for a specific purpose for God's glory. Isaiah 61 promises that someone uh, that it's anointed is going to br bring uh, a restoration to God's purposes and mission in this world. So let's look at verses 1 through 3 again. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the, Lord, the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. This anointed servant is going to be the one that goes to these broken places in order to restore them. His message will be good news to the poor, the text says. His actions will bind up the brokenhearted and set free the captives. He will comfort the mourning, bring beauty out of ashes, take off garments of grief, and put on clothing of praise. And he will raise up a people, the text says, 
who used to be a people that were broken, but now they're called oaks of righteousness. That is, they're firmly planted in God's ways of righteousness and love. And the Lord will plant then those people of righteousness in places in order to display His glory. And now this people, God's people, will be called to this work of restoration with this anointed one. Isaiah 6, 4 through 6 says, They, God's people now, will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities. They will have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flock. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord and you'll be named ministers of our God. Just like the anointed servant, we as God's people are called to be servants of a God. That's what that word ministers mean. We serve God and others by going to these abandoned buildings in order to renovate, or we go to the neglected garden in order to restore. And by doing this, our calling to pursue justice and mercy by creating beauty through restoration is occurring and we're participating in God's work of redemption. And you see that phrase, so that others might be invited into it. You're, you're cultivating this work of restoration, not just for yourself but f- and for your people, but as, as, as it says in verse 5, others will come. Strangers that don't get to benefit from this place of beauty are going to be invited into that place and into that garden in order to participate into it. And so, plant and stay. Plant and stay. This is a focus that uh, is adapted by, from another article I read that really inspired this um, sermon where the author exhorts us to do something similar, but he puts it like this. He says, repair and remain. That author, his name's Kurt Armstrong. He works uh, part-time, maybe full-time. I forget exactly the details, but he has a couple of different jobs. He renovates buildings, uh, so he's a contractor, uh, and he also works at a church as a pastor. He's an Anglican pastor in a church. And the imagery that he provides is very similar. Like gardening and home renovation, you work with what you have and where you're at. You repair and you rem- remain. And he's using that exhortation to push back on what our tendency is especially if you live in a place that might have difficulties or things that get hard, we want to move and start over. We want to start fresh. But he says, don't move and start over. Repair, remain. Your house is falling apart. It's better just to stick there, put a hard work in, be patient, repair, and remain. You want to go and start new, start fresh, have it all done for you. He says, don't do that. Push back on that tendency to think that it's going to be better if you move and start over. Just repair and remain. Inevitably, the reality of our experience is that relationships in our life and the neighborhood in which we live will get difficult at times. And we need to commit to pulling the weeds out of those gardens and repairing the cracks in the plaster. And that's what the calling of Scripture is. But our tendency is is to start over. But this pushback, I think that's a helpful pushback, is for this Christian calling to invest, to plant, repair, and stay foot. 
People and places go through different seasons, and that's for sure. But often for us, when winter hits, the difficult seasons of life hit in our relationships, in our neighborhoods, in our spaces. We want to go somewhere warm and where the grass is greener, because that is going to be what's easier. But if you really are a people, a Christian people that are formed by the gospel, and you want to see justice and peace, then begin with this. Begin in a specific group of people, specific place and steward that place and care for those people and that garden that you have responsibility over, that household, your block, your place of work in your city, repair and remain, plant and stay. If relationships get challenging, your neighborhood and your neighbors get difficult, work is frustrating, and your city is experiencing some unrest, don't think grass is greener and I just need to get out. If you really want to pursue that work of justice and mercy, stay. Focus on the garden that's, uh, that you have responsibility over and start pulling weeds out one at a time and start the work of pulling, replanting, watering, seeding, and staying. Wait and see what grows. And as you focus on your garden, then the Christian call, like the text in um, Isaiah 61, is to invite more people into these spaces of beauty that you create. Like gardens with a warm fire pit or a home with a nice long dining room table, they're not just for you, but places where you can invite others into that place of beauty for the sake of their own flourishing and for the love of our neighbor as, as we are seeking to cultivate these places of beauty and peace. And then, just so that you know, like the calling there is, 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 is in light of the fact that we are all finite people. We can't care for everybody, we can't care for all spaces, but we can care for some people, we can care for some blocks, we can care for some areas of life that we can see to it, that we put in the hard work of staying, planting, and seeing that we can create a place of beauty. But then one of the ways that we expand that is not only through the work and practice of stewardship, but the work and practice of service, where service is where you go out and you help invest into other people so that they too can create spaces and gardens of beauty that other people can enjoy and experiencing the flourish of relationships and the love of God in those spaces. You plant and you stay and you serve others so that they too may plant and stay and remain. But even if you hear that call, you might still be thinking, will that really matter? Because I've done that, I've stayed put in this you know, difficult relationship, in this difficult place, and it just doesn't seem to be that I'm getting anywhere. Will my small contribution even do anything? And that's where Isaiah 61 reminds us this. Look at verse 10. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteous and praise spring up before all nations. 
In this verse, there's some debate about who the I is that's speaking in this passage. I understand it to be the Messiah, the anointed one, who shares with God his righteousness, power, and beauty. But in the context of the scriptures, then the Messiah is also going to give that righteousness and beauty to his people like a garment. And verse 1 goes on to explain that God is the source of this righteousness and beauty. That's the point. Just as soil and the garden makes plants grow and become beautiful, so too God makes his people righteous and uh, an object of praise that then will be uh, growing throughout the world. In other words, we might plant and water, but God is the one who grows the garden and makes it beautiful. And then you get to the Gospel of Luke. And there's just this amazing passage where Jesus goes into this place of worship, and Isaiah 61 is the scripture reading of that day. And this is what happens when Jesus reads that passage. He went to Nazareth, Luke 4, 16, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the Lord, the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Christ is the anointed servant who fulfills Isaiah 61. The Son of God came to serve uh, and, and, and not to be served so that he could store righteousness and beauty in your life but also in the life and the environments that you find yourselves in. He ultimately achieved this by taking on all the brokenness of sin and darkness onto himself on the cross. Jesus Christ died and he was buried on the third day and he rose again. And out of the ashes came beauty. Out of the tomb came resurrection. And now he continues to reign in heaven and pours out his spirit on you, my brothers and sisters. Calls upon his church to be a part of the renewal of all things that includes these practices of stewardship and service. And through these practices, as I've been saying, we are called to plant a garden, to plant, to stay, to remain, to choose a specific place and a specific people, and an area of brokenness in your life to bring restoration, salvation, and beauty until we wait for the day for Christ to return and restore all things in heaven and earth. And as we wait for that day, our call right now is to bring a measure, even if it's an imperfect measure of that, to our own households, neighborhoods, and cities right now. I want to conclude by reading a song that uh, is actually probably the main inspiration for this imagery in uh, the sermon. It's a, uh, a song by a, a Christian folk artist named Kyle Church, and he wrote a song called Plant a Garden. Uh, and I'm going to close by just reading the lyrics of that song to kind of get you uh, to again imagine this in your own life, in your, the relationships in your life, your co-workers, on your campus, in your neighborhood, in your world, this calling to plant and stay and how that can be a small way that you contribute in, in, in a world that's overwhelmed by brokenness, that if you can be overwhelmed by grace where you're at, in the areas that you're stewarding, that you can plant places of beauty there and invite people into those places. 
So Kyle Church, plant a garden, here are the lyrics. This world and its problems are too big for me. I'm just a drop in the bucket and my hands are weak. I've stressed and I've wrestled. I've lost nights of sleep over things far beyond my control and my reach. I remember you growing, flowers and showing, me how to care for the dirt. You said, trust me when I say, if the world goes the wrong way, beauty will save the earth. The chorus goes like this. So I'll plant a garden of flowers and things that will bloom. Tend to my yard, and in time I'll taste of its fruit. As my act of, as my act of resistance, I'll work with persistence and care for my neighbors too. I'll plant a garden like you taught me to. Second verse, I've heard rumors of war and bombs in the night. They say they're conspiring to get us, and maybe they're right. But God only knows when, the day or the time, when we'll all face the curtain to say our goodbyes. I remember you told me of flowers growing through cracks of war-torn streets. You said when there's chaos around us, to care from the ground up and to keep growing beautiful things. So I'll plant a garden of flowers and things that will bloom, tend to my yard, and in time I'll taste of its fruit. As my act of resistance, I'll work with persistence and care for my neighbors too. I'll plant a garden like you taught me to. I remember you told me that there, that there is only so much we can bear. You said it's better to live simple and to let your world get little and care for the people there. And that is the calling of the good life in a broken world. Blessed are those who plant a garden.